Hello and welcome to a new episode of the PAVE podcast. Today we talk with Ravika Kara about the Commission on the Status of Women and International Women's Day on March 8th. Ravika Kara is Senior Advisor on Strategic Partnerships and Advocacy to the Assistant Secretary General to the UN and Deputy Executive Director at UN Women. With over two decades of experience, Ravi is an expert in various international development-related fields, driving innovation, building strategic partnerships, and promoting advocacy and programming in the areas of human rights, gender equality, accountability, and social justice. He is also the acting head of private sector for UN Women. Ravi has been instrumental in supporting UN Women's work on strategy development. This includes strategy on youth and gender equality, working with boys and men in gender equality. He has been awarded the Global Officials Award for his work on youth and gender equality and the Interfaith Award on promoting peace and harmony. He was also appointed as Junior Chamber International Ambassador. Previously, he has also worked at the UN Millennium Campaign, UN Habitat, UNICEF, and Save the Children, and has written more than 80 publications and articles in his career spanning over two decades. Welcome to the PAVE podcast, Ravi. Today we're going to talk about the Commission on the Status of Women and the International Women's Day on March 8th with the campaign title Be Bold for Change. But first I would like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell me more about yourself and about your job as a Senior Advisor Strategic Partnership for the UN where you work since 2014? Uh, thank you so much, Alina. It's great to be here, and thank you to you and uh, Mandy for inviting me. Uh, I work, as you said, I work with UN headquarters, with UN Women, as a senior advisor to the Deputy Executive Director and the UN Assistant Secretary General, and I look in the area of strategic partnership and advocacy. I'm at the moment also the acting head of the private sector, which means how does UN Women engage with the private sector in advancing gender equality? And the third part of my portfolio is also to look at UN Women's Youth Outreach. So I've led the development of the youth strategy on how to empower young women and young men to become partners in achieving gender equality. So very happy to be here. We are going to talk about, like I said, about the International Women's Day. Can you tell me a little bit more about that too? Yeah, I think it's it's fantastic to, you know, look at, again, a big coming together of the global uh, women's movement and all the supporters on March 8th. As you know, this is one of the most important days, really, uh, you know, fought by many women's groups, uh, you know, for decades and saying that we need to celebrate uh, women's rights, women's empowerment and gender equality on this specific day. This day is very unique because this day, uh, this time, the focus of the day is on the, uh, working women um, and the, you know and economic empowerment. So it is about women in the changing world of work. And we know from all the statistics and all the data that we're looking at just not creating an ecosystem that supports women to work, but also to recognize the unpaid care work, we're looking at the role of men in taking on unpaid care uh, responsibility, especially of fathers on nurturing and caring. At the same time, working with heads of states and member states to look at, you know, how do we uh, create a policy that creates and supports women to uh, become important economic agents in their communities and society. And lastly, but also to say that it is just not from a rights perspective, but also there's a very clear business case as we know that all these studies which are coming through, uh, you know, whether it's a city or whether it's a World Economic Forum, and many others, including the latest McKenzie study, which says 
when you work with women and girls and bring them into the economic uh, as economic force, you actually bring twelve trillion dollars to the world economy. So it also makes a very strong economic case for working with women and girls in economic empowerment. So as you know, there are celebration across the world, and we are very very excited because this uh, sets into a very important tone of uh, the Agenda 2030, which you know is the um, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, UN Women with many uh, women's groups have worked very hard to really secure the goal number five, which is advancing all women and uh, girls' empowerment across the world. Just wondering out loud, do you think that boys and men can help break the glass ceiling for women? I think uh, the uh, unfortunate reality it is the men who have created the glass ceiling. And I think it is not just from a responsibility perspective, but I think it is from accountability perspective that men should work very clearly on breaking the glass ceiling. And I think there are different ways by which you can do. And uh, I've been very strongly advocating, Alina, for a life cycle perspe perspective on working with men and boys, but also ecological model of working with men and boys. But first and foremost is the rights perspective to work with working with men and boys. So this is what I mean by what I just said. I think first, it is critical that we educate our boys, adolescent boys, young men, men and older men, on safeguarding, protecting, and partnering to ensure that all rights of women and girls are respected throughout the society. In my own work, I've seen that many boys and young men have no idea that there is a convention on elimination of discrimination against women. And that really is a little sad because we are in year 2017 and about uh, how many, almost close to 40 years ago in 1979, the convention was adopted. So I think when we talk about educate our boys to respect rights of women, these boys have no idea what rights we are talking about. And I think there it is very critical that in all situations, whether you are industrialized economy or a situation refugee or conflict or disaster, uh, that you must start from the rights perspective. That's number one. And second, as I was touching upon, is really that we also work on a life cycle perspective. So we know very clearly that certain toys and many, in fact, majority of toys in the games that are introduced in, in the early childhood development all this already starts stereotyping. So how do you ensure that you're inculcating issues of nurturing and caring and not just violence and guns and tractors and, you know, very clearly uh, created uh, tools uh, such as, you know, a replication of the uh, a larger justification of violence that boys are given at a early, very early on. And the girls are told that, you know, they should do the dolls and so on and so forth. And the attributes of nurturing and caring are given to girls even when they're like 12 months old or even 14 months old, whereas boys are given these instruments, which are these, you know, the instruments of violence that they're, they're kind of said, oh, this is very nice for a boy to hold a gun, whether it's a toy gun or a tool that is about, you know, killing. So I think for us, it is very critical to work on a, on a life cycle perspective, just not in early childhood development, but also when the boy is entering the boyhood. So understand that they are not stereotyped in the school system or coming from the family or society or media. And as boys enter puberty and are looking at huge brain development, huge changes in their physical body, I think they need to be 
uh, educated to not only look at their own reproductive uh, health transformation, but also respect the rights of the girls and especially the sexual and reproductive health rights, which they have to take on the responsibility uh, of as they move forward in life. And also understand the importance of consent, you know, which is so critical uh, in this uh, uh, age. At the same time, boys should also at adolescence start understanding that there is, uh, you know, the feelings of love, harmony, peace, respect, which are just not as attributed as a feminine or a feminine, uh, uh, you know, value. It is also seen as an important value of masculinity. And this is when the definition of masculinity goes beyond just being into a textbook, but also boys are shaping and reshaping their personalities every day when they enter the youthhood. And that's when many boys in some parts of the world actually become fathers as early as 2021. 20, and uh, in fact, many, many parts of the world or they get into the profession looking at exploration of what their adult or them as an adult men will look like. And there again, the introduction of healthy relations is very critical. Taking a stand, becoming a real he for she on taking an action to end violence. And of course, as fathers and middle aged men, I think one education that needs to happen is a very clear introduction of uh, for the young fathers or the first time fathers is on the role of fathers in nurturing and caring uh, of the children and especially the infant. And this we are seeing actually interestingly, you know, I was having a conversation with some boys in Toronto a week ago and I asked them, I said, if I have to ask you a question that what is manhood and you have to go back and ask your father and, and his friends what manhood is, is there a difference? Listen, of course, there's a lot of difference, you know. My father would not let my mother work, whereas I think it's crazy. Why, why shouldn't women work? They should do what they want to, and we must be supportive. So there is that very interesting piece which is coming through, and that's my last piece, is that while working with men and boys, we need to look at an intergenerational approach, which is, you know, really looking at working with boys and, and men and older patriarchs to transform the society because we know that grandfathers suddenly find themselves with more nurturing and caring uh, you know, personalities and they were missing that out when they were there as fathers. And many uh, sons would go back and say, Father, you didn't do this to me, but you're doing this to my daughter. You know, you're being so amazed to, with a granddaughter. And that's so critical that we bring in these attributes throughout the life cycle. And last is the ecological model, which is really to understand that we, when you're transforming masculinities and feminities, it has to start from self. It must look at the family setting, which means the mother and father or the partners must look at how they're looking at gender relations and, um, and the way they function as a unit. Moving on to the state, which is the government, how government is supporting a non-stereotypical roles of fathers and mothers in society or men and women in the workplace. And that brings me to the second, third, fourth part of the ecological mo mo model is the market or the workplace. That how to ensure that women are just not just coming up from schools, but they actually get paid for equal work, for you know, equal pay for equal work. They also get equal opportunity in the leadership cycle, all the way up to boardrooms and C-suites. So ensuring that we have 50-50 parity. Uh, and then men need to come up and make sure that it's, you know, making... Working with women is not about, you know, cutting the pie into half and say, you know, it's about really expansion of the power relations. And, and we know we're saying that statistics are telling us from the best business minds are saying that when women will come out on taking all these leadership positions, you'll actually advance $12 trillion. So I think there the whole challenge is that how do you change 
the mindset of men to say that you know bringing women and uh, girls into the education system into the workplace as equal is actually beneficial to everybody including men and boys thank you Krabi, can we dive in into csw for a moment you know i think it's important to understand the historical perspective of the commission on status of women which started in 1946 i think many of us don't realize that the commission on status of women has been meeting for 70 years and now this time it will be the 61st session and imagine uh, you know one thing which was discussed right after the world war one or two was that how do you ensure that women's status changes now how do you really look at unpacking that which really can be in a very simplified way we can look at how are women's conditions and positions changing in the society so which by mean by condition we would say that how the social economic political cultural civil dimensions and especially are changing more political come more in the position aspect which is health services education environment water and sanitation social protection financing investment and so on and so forth so the commission on status of women really is an annual meeting of all critical actors but also it is convened at the un uh, especially through the bureau bringing together all the member states to report and show where is the progress and where is the world moving forward or backward into the agenda i think today with the very clear understanding that there is a shrinking of the democratic space but i think also in a positive way this assertion by the women's movement and gender equality advocates saying that we will not accept any any suffocation and stifling of the women's right agenda and i think this is so critical and this year the commission on status of women again as i said before is in uh, tune with the international women's day which is women in the changing world of work so we will really look at the dimensions in the uh, in the gender compact especially the agenda 2030 goal number 5 which very clearly talks about economic empowerment entrepreneurship skills development innovation and most importantly often forgotten is bringing finance and investing in women and girls so i think this is really very exciting time we'll have the commission on uh, uh, from 13th of march but you know this is one of the biggest gatherings outside the un general assembly annual meeting where many many women's groups and supporters come from all across the world but there was a very important edition that i had a privilege to facilitate and lead which was the youth csw so last year we introduced a new parallel event which was for the first time in 70 years and the 60th session coinciding with the uh, you know the beijing plus 20 uh, 20 commemoration that we introduced this uh, very critical session saying let's bring young women and young men i'm telling you you know when we started we thought nobody will show up and just for the youth csw just give you an example of how this looks like is that last year i was given 45 days we worked with amazing organizations like ywca world association of girl guides and girl scouts uh, the plan international and many others to really bring 300 people this year we open our registration two days before christmas today we have 2500 people who just want to come for youth csw uh, from across the world and these are just not young women feminists like yourselves or brilliant human beings and advocates but also young men and other binaries coming saying that we need to have a serious conversation on how young people which which make up 1.8 billion of the human race to really have a discussion on equality and you know we will be discussing uh, uh, just to give you a window into issues is one issue we discussing it how do you strengthen young women's leadership 
in localization and implementation of sustainable development goals? How do you work with young women as economic force of innovation and entrepreneurship? How do you work with adolescent boys and young men as partners in gender equality? How do you work through an intergenerational approach so that you can actually work throughout the life cycle? Yeah, so, so just to say that we'll be working through the life cycle on girls, adolescent girls, young women, and older women. So we look at the intergenerational piece. So yes, a lot of exciting part. The other important element of the commission is the uh, you know, other focus, which is the strengthening rights of indigenous women and girls, you know, which is the second theme as the emerging theme. So we are very, very excited. We would be looking at challenging the social norms and stereotypes, but also really advancing the political discussion. I'm particularly interested in financing of gender equality in line with the Addis Ababa agreement. So, uh, you know, lots of excitement, and I hope this will really advance the conversation to another level. Thank you. Is there a way the audience can participate or read more about uh, this subject? Yeah, the audience can participate uh, uh, the, on the commission. You can go to www.unwebtv.org or you can, of course, follow my, uh, my Twitter, which uh, Alina would put, but also follow UN Women's Twitter and UN Women for Youth Twitter to get some social media updates. But all, most of the sessions will be webcasted. As we speak right now, there's an online consultation taking place on intergenerational partnership. Uh, that you can participate in. So there are different ways where you can come in. You can also follow the NGO CSW uh, Twitter handle to look at how many NGOs uh, are participating and organizing themselves in and around the UN CSW. Well, I will uh, put the links in the show notes. I'm next to uh, CSW and International Women's Day. Is there something you are working on that is challenging you in any way? a pressing issue or a challenge you face in your work field? You know, I think the uh, the, the biggest challenge uh, that, I fa- uh, that I feel I face is, you know, you know, I've been working on gender equality for the last 21 years, coming from India as a male feminist and also a father who started a new dialogue called Dads with Daughters. I feel that, you know, one of the biggest challenges that, yes, we've been having this conversation for 70 years. But when it comes to really where the, you know, where the rubber meets the road, you know, people do not invest and finance women's empowerment and gender equality work. And I feel that, you know, somewhere because of the patriarchal system and it's, uh, I would say, lack of support largely to the women's agenda, you also see that translated on financing for gender equality and women's empowerment work. So, you know, we... We will always, you know, go ahead and, you know, we will push forward the important uh, political participation. For example, a very important milestone was achieved on 27 September 2015 when UN women together with the premier of China were able to bring 81 heads of states and say that we should have a date of achieving substantial gender equality. And this was, you know, we were told by many people this will never happen. But it happened. You know, the 31 heads of states agreed with 31st December 2030 as an important milestone for achieving gender equality. And we came up with a campaign called the Planet 5050 by 2030. Having said that, there is an agreement. But, you know, where do we get the finances? Who will put that? So that's why it's important to have public-private partnership to ensure that people also are able to understand that we must invest in our women and girls development. We must, the private sector needs to be, uh, you know, um, uh, sensitized and also should be asked to commit 
to really through the corporate social responsibility initiative to support women and girls. So the listeners who are in India, for example, India has a CSR Act, which requires 2% of certain five, top 500 companies to give uh, to, uh, uh, to social responsibility initiatives. I've been advocating very strongly for the 1% of that to be purely allocated for women and girls. And similarly, many uh, governments have been saying we are a feminist government, we are doing this. But I think we need to see more support and finances to women and girls agenda. I think that really hasn't happened. And that is one of the biggest challenges. And I think the second biggest challenge is, personally from a social norm perspective, is that nobody challenges the sexism and stereotypes in the media and the social media industries now. And that is that is uh, a very unfortunate because they keep on shaping and reshaping the way we bring up our girls and sons uh, or you know in or you know into the society and that is that is another important piece that will be picked up in the conversation on UN uh, UN um, commission on status women in 2018 uh, and of course the third challenge i would say alina is that while we have all this conversation i think we should always remember that women and girls are not a homogeneous group they are a heterogeneous group that means that how do you ensure two aspects, the marginalized issues of women and girls should be in the center and also the most marginalized women and girls should be in the center. So where is the conversation with women with disabilities, indigenous women, minority women, you know, uh, LGBTQI women and others, and the most marginalized issues such as refugee crisis, the the migrant, commu- uh, you know, uh, uh, migration uh, crisis, and so on and so forth. I think those challenges. I think something which we can really work better and uh, achieve. So I think applying, uh, you know, not just a gender lens, but also within a gender lens, uh, uh, you know, the intersectionalities of understanding women and girls issues is so critical because it is not so linear. It is a uh, very complex. And it must have a very important rights response, you know, rights-based response to ensure that we are about all women and all girls when we're really looking at advancing on gender equality. How did you become so passionate and how do you become an, um, I, I believe you called yourself a, a male feminist? I really love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, I was telling people, which I think it's very lucky, and there's an interview of mine on the net, you can see. Yeah, luckily for me, my role modeling was both correct. My father was an amazing supporter and my mother. My father would you know, be a stay-at-home dad and wait for my working mother to come and then go and do his real estate business. And of course, that time we never understood what was happening, right? When you reflect back into your childhood, and you say, wow, that was amazing because he was a Punjabi guy, 6'2", would also cook for the family. Very unlike the rest of the Indian men fathers and all my friends' father none of them cooked for anybody and you know nobody was a stay at home dad and uh, and also marrying intercaste you know you know it's an amazing story and my mother who is an amazing woman leader i mean uh, she <laughs> ran you know she uh, ran away from her house to study right at the age of 17 so she was not forced into early marriage and she married later when in her 30s and i was born when she was in her 40s so we i, I always say i'm a product of an empowered woman right and a, and a, and a gender sensitive or a feminist father so this is what can happen you know i mean i feel very very uh, privileged and also with my own uh, you know with my wife and with my daughter uh, especially with samara it became very very clear that for me that i needed to go back to the women's agenda and that's when i tried to move back and apply for 
to various opportunities in UN Women. I'm so grateful with the leadership we have in UN Women by our executive director, Pumzile, who started the global movement called Hifushi. My boss is the deputy executive director, Lakshmi Puri, who really championed the Agenda 2030 goal number five and the support she uh, gathered and got from everybody else to make that happen. So I think I'm very excited. And I, she, you know, somebody asked me the other day, uh, that how do you feel working for UN Women? I said, look, when I come early and leave at six o'clock in the evening, because everybody knows that I need to go back to my daughter, you know, and they know that for the last two years, I've stopped traveling because I've been very clearly uh, committed to or nurturing and caring. For me, it's not a philosophy. Telling men should do this. I do that every day. You know, I practice my role as father on caring and nurturing because I believe very, very strongly in that. So I think and that can only happen in an agency such as UN Women, where it is just not unlike the myth that UN Women would only mean that only women are working here. But men also work and also men gain a lot from gender equality and benefit from it. I believe you said a perfect example um, of how a dad uh, could balance his work and um, his very important private life. I really admire how you do Has it. to be. Yes. Otherwise we're contradicting. It's, I think it's really a, a perfect example for a lot of other men and women because they can learn from that too. You know, can I, can I, Alina, you touch on a very sensitive issue which I talk about. I think, you know, working on gender equality is to transform both feminities and masculinities. And it's so critical to, you know, that's why it says really to work not only with men, but also, of course, a lot to do with women, but also men. And we need everyone to be involved. We cannot say only this versus that. We need everybody to be involved. And we have to transform the minds, uh, mindset of women too, because... Completely. Yes, we, and we need both parties. You probably have uh, a lot of uh, stories about this, but do you have a moment in your career that changed the way you look at things? Or can you tell me um, your most touching experience at work? Because, well, you work at the UN, so you must have a lot of great stories. <laughs> So, you know, the the most important uh, moment of my life was actually, I was very lucky, it was in a village in India, where I was doing a training on gender sensitization early on when I was very young, in my, I, mean, I think I must have been 20 and a half or something. And I was doing this training in a village on uh, women um, uh, who were entering as leaders in local governance structures in India called Panchayati Raj, which means that 33% reservation was introduced through our uh, into the into the indian constitution giving women the first time women to stand up in into office in villages and in districts so i was doing leadership training for these women's groups and they would be like in hundreds and in one certain village in rajasthan near Udaipur, uh, i was uh, we did the training me and my colleague and we were sitting down and an old woman who was a must be in her late six seventies 70s or early 80s she sat us down and said, you know, come here, son, I want to talk to you. And of course, you know, with respect and humility, you go to her and she says, it's very nice that you people are doing this training. We are really enjoying the way you're doing it. But I have a proposal for you. You know, we understand most of the work that you're doing, but I don't understand why are you doing this with us? And she pointed the finger uh, to a group of men who were sitting below a tree uh, gambling and smoking hookah. And she said, don't you think these men need this training? 
and and alina i honestly had was like okay great thank you and i must confess i was wondering wh- what does she mean yeah. and two months from there i was in patna in uh, saint xavier's institute and doing a similar training that time it was training of trainers and i did a role reversal which was to get men to be confined into a corner and to cover the head and put veil and in order for them to move out of the kitchen they have to take small steps and not bother the men which who these men now were the women who were enacting as men in the role reversal role play experiential technique that i used suddenly i saw the faces of these men who were forced to become women in this role play and they were almost like choking and i knew exactly what she was saying it just came to me like a very clear sign that in order for us to really achieve gender equality it's not only that we need to work with women and girls but also transform patriarchy by making men and boys as partners in gender equality so that i would say was the one of the most important life changing uh, uh, episodes in my life i love that story it's really empowering too i was i didn't ask this earlier but i was also wondering how did you became involved with the un in the first place yeah i think uh, me my uh, uh, because you know for me it's uh, another that's another story actually because when i did my economics i wanted to become an mba but my you know uh, then i decided to do my masters in social work and was doing a diploma in industrial relations and so on and so forth actually i was on my way to join as a management trainee in a human resource de- department but then i when i was given this opportunity and i went to my mother and said look i have a job uh, uh, which is about uh, you know maybe i should move to the human resource side or i should work in this ngo that is asking me to work in villages on this women's leadership initiative and she really sat me down and she said listen you know money will come and go and the hr job would have meant more money right she said look money would come and go but what i really want you to focus is on is something which makes you happy i said i think i will be very exciting to go to india and travel all over the country and really work in villages she said they go for it so i think for me the un was very interesting because i was doing some initiative similarly on children's issues and youth issues and i was uh, asked by the unicef regional office in south asia who asked me to talk about working with men and boys in south asia so i was part of this huge film project that you can look online it it was called in the 1999 it was called let's talk men which looked at the way masculinity was constructed in india bangladesh nepal and pakistan um, and i led that uh, launching of those four films which was kind of bringing for the first time a conversation on masculinities in south asia so somehow somebody in the un uh, learned what i was doing and they reached out to me and that's when i started working for the un and i i really enjoyed you know honestly for me uh, alina it's not that i work for the un i think it is un is a very very important very sacred institution but for me the most critical thing is the purpose purpose of life the purpose of life for me is that i work for gender equality and i'm very grateful i work for un within that but where i work is that you know i work with so many youth leaders and amazing advocates like mandy you and others for me that is what it is you know i always say that in un women maybe we are very very poor on resources but we extremely rich on partnerships and i think for us the only way we can really create change in gender relations in the world is because we need that critical mass of a huge number of people coming saying that it's not okay and this is how it should happen that every man and woman should be treated as equal every girl and boy should be given the same 
uh, opportunity for the development right from the inception you know not all the way when they come out right from the beginning so that's my story you know thank you so much well thank you very much we're almost at the end of the podcast and my last question will be uh, if you can share a quote or something that will inspire the listener to keep up the good work you know my favorite quote is that leaders do not create followers leaders create other leaders and that's what i very strongly believe that when i work especially with young people and and that's why i call, you know my twitter and i say people follow me as if they're supporters and my job really is honestly to create the next generation of leaders because you know in last 20 years sometimes i get very frustrated to see that nothing moved but then i get very encouraged when i work with some young spirited fellows um uh, you know and these young amazing leader uh, women and men saying that you know we need to change this completely and i give you a story from toronto and that's across the world so really the quote really is that you know true leaders don't create followers they really create other leaders thank you for being our first male guest oh, wow what an honor <laughs> thank you so much i'm very excited and thank you it's a great honor to be on the podcast and i want to thank the listener too for tuning in You can find the show notes, links and references at www.professionalsagainstviolence.com slash blog. And if you like this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. We will come back shortly with an all new episode of the PAVE podcast. See you then. Bye bye.